All right, if you would, be turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. As we continue through the book of Daniel, um, we come to a chapter that we are familiar with a portion of it just because it has been talked about so much in broad evangelical culture, and that is the issue of the 70 weeks. So, Here's my promise to you. As you leave here this morning, you're going to know exactly what every single week means. That's a lie. No, you're not. I'm not going to be able to do that. In fact, that's not even the emphasis of the chapter. But for some reason, that's what we've talked about the most, which is exactly what Satan would have us to do. Instead of talking about prayer, instead of talking about the thing that we have been given that humbles us and encourages us and edifies us, we talk instead about that which terrifies and confuses us. Don't you think that odd? That God would give us something that would lead us into confusion and division within his church? That cannot be so. So we, unfortunately, oftentimes with this chapter, place the emphasis upon the wrong syllable. And instead, the emphasis ought to be placed on what Daniel shows us. And I want you to also uh, remember how many times in the book of Daniel, Daniel is driven to pray. You know, we always talk about there to be a Daniel, but it never is that we talk about it in terms of being men and women of prayer. It's always talked about as something else. So if you want to dare to be a Daniel, become a man or woman of great prayer under all circumstances, even persecution, which he taught us back when there was an edict given in Daniel chapter 6, which occurs somewhere around this time that he's praying here. And so it's very important for us to ask this question. And I want you to meditate on this. I want you to take time this Lord's Day Sabbath and think about this question and talk about it among your friends and your family. But what is it that actually moves you to pray? Right? What, what is it that actually causes you to at last come to the Lord your God with either praise or thankfulness or supplication um, or confession? What is it that actually finally moves you from the inertia of not praying to praying? Because what Daniel is going to teach us is there's some things that ought to be regularly calling us to pray. Not just the demand that we do it three times a day, as was the case in Daniel's time. But that there are genuinely things that move us because we know who we are and we know who God is. A right understanding of both of, the, both of those things, which prayer actually helps to cultivate in us. Now I get, trust me, I am numbered among you in the struggle because you don't hear someone talk back. But here's what I would posit. Of the times that God has talked back seemingly audibly in the Bible, what was the response of the people? If God did talk to you, I doubt it would actually increase your prayer life. In fact, you, you might, out of just genuine fear, not say much at all. So don't ever use as an excuse the fact that you don't have anything auditory, that he doesn't leave you an email, that he doesn't send you a tweet, that he doesn't send you a Snapchat, or whatever it is you kids are doing these days, that he doesn't communicate in some way. He has communicated so beautifully and so clearly through his word, through his law, through his prophets, through his creation. Everything, everything speaks of him if you have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. 
and you know where and how to look as the Bible instructs us. Now think about this. Daniel is in, he's in exile. He's going to be in exile for the full 70 years. He doesn't get to come home. He will die in exile. Think of the visions he's been giving, given where God makes it clear this is not the end of the trouble for my people. There will be kingdoms that will come. There will be temples that will be torn down. There will be suffering. Long beyond your return to this promised land and the building of this temple at this time. Think of what that would have done to him in terms of wanting to pray. Would you want to pray after hearing all that? Should, we should, we should be moved to prayer by those things because of the promise of God that says, though those things will happen, happen, this is not the end. Evil can only go so far. This is why there are numbers and days and years given. This is why there's 77 so that we know there is a predetermined time at which all things will be made new. So Daniel 9 is set in the same year uh, or around about the same time as Daniel chapter 6. We don't know exactly where or how close it is to him being thrown into the lion's den, but it is the same king. And we will see that, that Daniel is actually given a beautiful application of a passage that we've preached on and that you've heard and you've seen it on coffee cups and it may even be somewhere in your house. Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14. He gives us a wonderful application of what that looks like. If you remember in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 14, God is saying you are going to go into exile for 70 years. And he gives them some instruction prior to that about how to live in exile, which Daniel has faithfully done and we see he is doing here. And then he says, after the end of that 70 years, I have a plan for you, my people, a plan to prosper you and to restore you. But even that will not be the end, because if you keep reading, in Jer you know Jeremiah 29 doesn't end at, at verse 11, right? Or the book of Jeremiah doesn't end there. There is the necessity as you go on in Jeremiah to have a new heart and a new covenant to be made, which we know doesn't happen until Christ comes. So this is but a momentary opportunity for the people of God to come up for air. And yet, it will not be land, it will not be king, it will not be governance, it will not be resource that saves them. A mistake that I think we are making right now. That we think that there are things that are nigh unto salvific if we could just get them going in our country. And we have divorced ourselves from the greater promises of God. And it's caused us to see narrowly and blindly and to go deaf in ways that is not good for the church. No, we have the opportunity in the midst of all of this to continue to be faithful. Robbie and I and Micah as well, as well as Johan who's here, we went to the Reformation Worship Conference this past weekend at Midway and one of the, Carl Truman spoke, and any of you who know who Carl Truman is, he's, he's a very snarky, by his own confession, cynical British person, which I think those are all just, you're just saying the same thing over and over, right? It's just <laughs> British person. So, so, uh, which he says, by the way, so I'm, I'm not, nothing I'm saying negative about Carl Truman. And he was going to be talking on, as he often does, if you, if you follow his writings at all in Reformation 21 or First Things, 
Um, he, he often speaks to cultural issues. And, and, and as we were going in, I was very interested to hear what he was going to be saying about all the, the, the cultural milieu which we find ourselves. And so um, it was one of the most encouraging things I think I have ever heard. He said, the, he said listen, church, here's, here's, here's what you do to handle the, all the cultural problems, okay? Same thing they've been doing since the first century. Preach, pray, administer the sacraments, and remain faithful. I have nothing more to say to you. Preach, pray, administer the sacraments, and remain faithful. That's how you outlast all of the kings, all of the kingdoms, all of the queens, all of the governances, and all of the things that will come. That is what we see from Daniel here, that in the moment, a moment in which he is shook and he is concerned, he turns to the Lord his God in prayer, which we hopefully will learn from. So what moves you to pray is very important. What I want you to get from this sermon is that God's word, character, and promises should lead us to pray with confidence. Let me say that again. God's word, which is important for you to know, which you can't know these other two things without, God's character, and God's promises should lead us to pray with confidence. Now let's turn to the text, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king, right? That's really important language where we see oftentimes in reference to these kings all throughout the book of Daniel, there's this sovereignty of God language. Did Darius choose to be king? Did he make himself king? No, the Lord our God made him the king of the second kingdom that was promised to come. He's made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near, and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets." All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. 
and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like this that was done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. All right, a few things that we need to take note of. One, what is it that sparks Daniel to pray in the first place? His reading of the Word of God. So he's in the book of Jeremiah. He could have been in Jeremiah 25, or he could have been in 29, or he could have read all of that. Either way, in Jeremiah 29, it says specifically, you are going to go into exile for your sin and your disobedience for 70 years, which is multiple generations of people who will never know life in the promised land. Remember what we've said about the book of Daniel, that the book of Daniel really is far more about prophecy that has come to pass than it really is about prophecy that will come to pass, right? It is actually the declaration of the fulfillment of the things that God has said all throughout the books that come before. That is important to us because Daniel prays because he's seen the Lord be faithful to fulfill what he said he would do. But remember, we have the great aspects of prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to see it coming up, of the promise of the one who comes like the Son of Man with the clouds, who will rule over all things, and the saints will be in the kingdom with him. That promise is greater than any that has come before. That's why prophecy looms so large in Daniel, not because of the amount, but because of what it ultimately declares. So Daniel, you've got to understand, at this point has probably been in exile for about 60 or 65 years. So it's drawing nigh toward the end of that 70 years. So he is provoked not to try to make God do what he said. He's provoked because he knows God will do what he said. And it's important for the people of God to be prepared for what's coming next, right? How much good does it do if the Lord takes all these people from exile who are left, reinserts them in the promised land, and they have yet to confess their sin and know why they were there in the first place? Right? Those of you who are parents, what good does it do if your children ultimately don't understand why what they did was wrong and to deal with that in a heart of repentance? All they're going to do is repeat their same mistakes over and over and over again, which is why law without grace doesn't work. Which is why law without the explanation of the prophets as to how to live doesn't work. Right? And so it's very important that what we see Daniel doing here is not trying to make God do what he said because he's doubting it's going to come, no, he sees the end drawing nigh for this 70 years of exile, and his longing is for the people of God to be woke, 
to what really is going on. Notice what he said. We have not entreated your favor. We have not sought your truth to be redeemed. He's among the people. Notice how little of the other people of God are mentioned in the book of Daniel. And if you read any of the exilic prophets, what you will find is that the people of God are not really doing much to prepare for their transition back into the promised land for what God has for them. So what Daniel is exposing is that the people of God have been lazy and that the people of God don't really believe in the promises. And one of the evidences of this is they're not pursuing confession and repentance, and they're not pursuing God's Word. They're not seeking to know the Lord their God. They're not seeking to understand themselves for who they truly are. So there's great confusion, and the promised land cannot correct that. Right? Any of you who've ever sinned, did, did you receiving more resources make you sin less? No. No, the issue is not resources. Did you who sin, did just, just bear knowledge, knowing more, make you sin less? No, more rules. No. No, there must be a relational heart change. This is what Daniel is crying out for. Notice that Daniel invokes the attributes of God. He is displaying his knowledge of God. And all of these attributes are really just him quoting Scripture from other places. You are steadfast in your covenant love for us. You are righteous. You are merciful and forgiving. And ultimately, what he is declaring is that you, God, are just. That which you said you would do, you have done. What good does it do? How many of you had a parent that would threaten you 1,900 times but never come through on the threat? And how did that help you become more obedient? It doesn't, does it? In fact, it almost becomes a fun game to see how many times can I get mom or dad to threaten me because it's hilarious. Right? But that's not God. No, in his word, in Deuteronomy 28, you should remember this. It's where the blessing and the cursing is set before the people of God. Moses, as he has been told, you will not enter the promised land for your sin, but you will sing this one last song. You will give them one last word. And that word was, I set before you blessing and curse. Either you obey and receive the blessing or you will disobey and you will be sent into exile scattered among the nations. But then there's the promise in Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10, that if you repent... If you will turn and pray, if you will, if you will again seek relationship with the Lord your God, I will bring you out. The same type of thing is said in 1 Kings 8 when Solomon is dedicating the temple. He's invoking all of this language. And so what Daniel is acknowledging is that the people of God are far from the God who is good, and that their issue is not because God is mean. Their issue is not because God is not faithful. Their issue is because they are unfaithful, and they have ignored the creator-creature distinction. They thought themselves greater than the creator. How could they still think that, given where they are? How could you? How could I? And so as he declares them, a disobedient and broken people, don't hear this as worm theology. 
Because he doesn't live, he's not staying there. He's saying, no, Lord, you, you are steadfast. You are faithful to forgive if we would but turn and do what you have told us to do. You have been so gracious to send us prophets. Right? You have been so faithful to make sure that we get to hear your word week in and week out. And yet, we can barely remember sermons from two weeks ago. We can barely remember, and you may say, well, that's because I've heard so dang many of them. Well, yeah, that's actually, that's evidence of God's faithfulness to make sure you can still hear. That's evidence of God's graciousness to you to make sure that there would always be good, bad, or indifferent a saint sinner who would stand before you and proclaim God's word. That there would always be a remnant, there would always be a witness in the world. That is just evidence of God's faithfulness. Not an opportunity for you to say, I've heard all this mess before. Well, then why don't we look different? Why doesn't this world look different? Why doesn't this community look different? But let me say this as good news. I am very, very humbled and grateful for you all to hear Jennifer's testimony of them reaching out to their neighbors and, and their willingness to continue to keep before us this generous opportunity to serve through M&A, people that are broken. Those of you who have kept uh, Travis and Laura's ministry before us so that we could, we could know of the people who are being redeemed in Kenya. Those of you who have been so generous and you continue to, to do so much, amen, and I am thankful for you. And, and this, this, this would be a whole lot harder without it for sure. But I want you to know that th don't take this for granted, this meeting together. Don't, don't take lightly the opportunity to hear God's love for you and the call for you to respond because what Daniel is saying is that the people didn't and they are suffering because of it. My challenge to you is stop acting like you have an eternity to blow. You don't. You don't. I don't. Again, slightly morbid, just had a birthday. I get it. It'll go away. But what's important is that we see that Daniel is using the attributes of God and the promises of God that invokes him to pray, that causes him to come before the Lord his God because he knows that God is good and that the answer is coming. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. And really, he's quoting John Owen in part, but it also may be Robert Murray McShane may have said this as well. And listen, what, this quote I'm about to give you, I don't like it either, but it is true. What an individual is in secret on his knees before God, that he is and no more. You need to understand that. That your Christianity is not what you mouth to the world because people can see through you, by the way. You ain't hiding anything. It is, it is not what you proclaim or how many books you read. It's not all of that knowledge. What it is is your humility on your knees before the Lord your God most displayed in prayer, which Christ died to make possible for us. You need to get that. Prayer is one of the gifts that Christ gave to us. That means prayer is you having access to God, which you did not have access to and you do not have access to in your fallenness. If you are not a Christian, you do not have access. Not in the way that one does who has been redeemed, for whom Christ has boldly thrown open the Holy of Holies so that we could boldly come to receive all that we need. Are we doing that? And I'd like to ask, what, 
What role do the attributes of God play in your prayers? How often do you, as you pray, are you being stirred to affection for Him because you're reciting who He is from His Word and what you've seen in the world? And how does your sin affect how you pray? Right? And how, how does, how does your, your sin, and more importantly, God's forgiveness and mercy of that said sin in Christ, how does that affect how you pray? For most of us, how sin affects how we pray is we don't. Right? Remember, which way do we run oftentimes? When we sin, we do not run to God. We run away from him. Christ died so that you could run to him. Christ was resurrected so that you could run to him. Christ sits at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for you so that you could run to him. Christ is coming again. That promise so you could run to him. Are you doing that? Or is your sin keeping you from the fellowship of God's people? Is it keeping you from the means of grace? It should not. It should not. Let's turn back to the text and see the second part of Daniel's prayer as he remembers and petitions for mercy. Verses 15 through 19. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of, for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your name's sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, Pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. As you hear what Daniel just invoked, he, he remembers them being delivered from Egypt. And remember, we talked about that a lot here, that every Lord's Day Sabbath is a, is a fantastic opportunity for you to remember the goodness of God even in that previous week. And part of what provokes Daniel to pray is the fulfilledness of God's promises, that God has been good to his people before. And what provokes him to pray is God's mercy and forgiveness. And he knows that God loves to redeem his people, not because of what they do, good or bad, but because of who God is and what it means for his name in this world. He is calling for the Lord to be glorified. Not just that the suffering will end. And he's asking knowing that a predetermined time has been set. And that it is drawing nigh. He's not changing God's mind. No. He is being aligned and brought into the same heart and phase and will of the Lord his God. Prayer should do that to us. Prayer is more about us being transformed into the image than it is about us lassoing God and making him act or function in a certain way. 
And you may say, well, then why pray? Because you need it. Because you need to be humbled. Because I need to be humbled. Because we need to be transformed. And prayer is the unique place where the Spirit meets with us and does that work. He doesn't do it when we're singing Taylor Swift at the top of our lungs driving in the car, even though it can be a beautiful day. He doesn't do it when we, when we uh, are so excited about Alabama and the fact that they're essentially a pro football team masquerading among children. He doesn't do it there. He doesn't. He doesn't. And I know we'd like to think that he does, but prayer is that unique time where you are stepping into holy ground. And it is something that we should take seriously. It is something that we should be mindful of because of the goodness of God. It is a means of grace for us. Listen to what John Calvin says of this passage. When we really embrace the grace of God, which he offers us, he meets us and precedes us with his goodness. And thus, we in time respond to his offers and bear witness to our expectation of his promises. Nothing, therefore, can be better for us than to ask for what he has promised. Thus, in the prayers of the saints, their feelings are united as they plead God's promises wherein they entreat him. And we cannot possibly exercise true confidence in prayer except by resting firmly in God's word. The reading of God's Word and prayer should be something that feeds both, right? It should, should be a, a devotional experience that occurs together. It should be something that we do with each other. And one of the things that we're going to emphasize at Christ Community Church over the next year, if you remember, there are three main pillars, generosity, prayer, and missionality. Generosity came fairly quick and easy for us for reasons I, I can't explain other than God is good. And we want to continue to be generous. And then it kind of seemed like we were kind of arcing toward trying to be missional, but the Lord halted that in my own heart. And as we talked as a session, as we met at the retreat, and we realized to try to be missional without being humble and prayerful first is a fool's bargain. We will be absolutely swept away with, with despair, trying to do something for which the Spirit has not empowered. And so this next year or years, however long the Lord says is necessary, we want to emphasize prayer. Here's some of the ways we're doing that. The elders and the deacons, for those of you who are in shepherding groups, they have been charged with, on Sunday mornings, trying to catch you. And I use that term specifically. Because usually when this ends, I, I don't, it makes me think there's like a sudden rapture of some sort. Because you evaporate. Many of you come late, leave early, basically, and there's no possible way for them to engage you. And you may say, well, they can call me. Okay, trying to get some of you on the phone. Really? They can email me. Oh, yeah, you're, 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 you're super responders. Right? They can Facebook message me. Waste of time. This is one of the opportunities that we have to live this out as a people of God. And so know that they're trying to catch you and they want to pray with you, not just for you. So stop evaporating, if you would, and give them the chance to love you well and for us to be the community of God he's called us to be. That's one aspect. 
I've also challenged them to also to reach out to you more. We're trying to become more proactive than reactive. We would love to be involved in your life before a bomb goes off, right? And then come in and have to try to say some hard things to you when we have no relationship with you. Now, remember, this is a two-way street. We can't do what you're unwilling to do. We cannot insert ourselves where you're unwilling to let us come in. We also cannot come in where we're not invited. It's not just about me inviting you to my house. It cuts back the other way as well, which I know, by the way, can be a fearsome thing for some of you. Because you're like, that's how you wind up a sermon illustration. <laughs> Having Cameron over. He sees things. It's not good. But I'm not there. The other six don't preach. You're safe. Right? And so, so this is where we... This is where we have the great opportunity to really become the community of God. And it's not only the elders and the deacons who can pray. You all can pray with one another. And as I look out upon this audience, knowing the things I know about each and most every one of you, there is not one single one of you that could, could honestly say, I don't need prayer this day. You can't say it with a straight face, except in arrogance, which is the antithesis to faith. And so one of the great things that we want to become known for is that we are a praying church. I would love to, in my lifetime, have this statement be changed. You know, Presbyterians are awesome uh, when you want doctrine and theology, but if I'm dying, send me a charismatic to pray for me. I'm fine with the charismatics coming and praying. That's awesome. But should the Presbyterians be excluded? Those who have theology and doctrine, we who ought know most of all the value of prayer, and we would not be welcomed into the place where it's needed the most? I'm not charging them with that. I'm charging us with that. Would that we would become a humble people because of our theology and doctrine, because of the means of grace, because of the doctrines of grace. God being sovereign should make us the most praying people of all. This is Daniel's example to us. We should be quick to pray with one another because we know God answers prayer. Not always in the way that we would determine, but we know how frail and fallen we are. That what we ask for often isn't what we actually even need. So, there's that. And we're also doing the Bible studies on Tim Keller, listen, Tim Keller can be wrong on a lot of things. This book on prayer is really good. I've read it. We've gone through it as staff. I wouldn't use it if it wasn't really, really solid. And so we're going to be doing that. There's an opportunity on Sunday nights and on Tuesday mornings. So men, if you have the opportunity to come, the men's retreat that's going to happen in the spring, this is news to everybody here, is going to be on prayer. It's going to be. Um, and so we're going to continue to emphasize and continue to try to disciple in this. Because if we don't grow in this, we're not a church. A church that doesn't pray is not a church, by the way. It's just not. And that's the preaching of the word. The getting into God's word should lead to greater prayer. Not less. So, what role does remembrance of God's past faithfulness and fulfillment of his promises play in your prayers? 
How much of your prayer time do you spend remembering how good God has been? Which, by the way, the breath in your lungs, that is total gift. You got plenty to be thankful for. Even if that's all you talked about. But there's more than that, and you know. And then, what do you regularly ask for? Are you asking for God to be glorified? Because that's a big prayer, actually. That means things in you have to change. In fact, on Saturday morning as I was heading to the conference for the last day, and the focus of the conference, you guessed it, was on prayer. And one of the things I prayed, and I prayed it with trembling. I said, Lord, would you, would you humble me with what is going to be said over these next three speakers? Would you, would you break me? I don't mean it, but would you? And guess what he did? He broke me. And I am breaking still. And that's a good thing. Because I know that the breaking is for his glory. And I know that the breaking is ultimately for my building up and edification. What is being exposed in me will only, only, ultimately lead to my transformation in his glory. Let's turn back to the text where I am going to um, fail you at the 70 weeks. But I want to make a really strong point about verse 24. Hear God's word again. While I, Daniel, was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy-sevens, or seventy weeks, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. I'm going to stop right there. What is the point of the 70 weeks or the 77s? to make all things new, to rid the earth at last of all that will keep God from his people. Now, I want you to know that's why we read Matthew 22, which many of you, I heard it get extra quiet because you're like, I'm not sure this is an assurance of pardoning. Yes, it is. It is, actually. But it's also a warning which you need in addition to the assurance of pardon, lest you cheapen God's grace. For those of you who are playing with God's grace, for those of you who are tampering with the things of God, you will be cast out into outer darkness because you are not wearing the righteousness of Christ at the wedding feast. Narrow is the way. Stop playing. And the assurance is that both good and bad were brought in. So it's not that you're cast out because you were bad. No, you're cast out because you don't see Christ as your Savior. You see him as your buddy. 
You see him as an addendum to your life. You see him as your homeboy. You see him as something other than Lord and Savior. That is dangerous. And when the world must be purged of all that is not of Christ, if that is you, you will be swept away. I do not say that lightly. I say it grievously. But it's something that we must take serious. More important than all that being swept away is what's coming in, which is righteousness. Everything will be made new. This is the Revelation 21-22 reality. The end of all things, 70 times 7, can be one of two things. Either it's 490 years, or it is the, the declaration of the perfection of the end of time, of all things. If you remember, the other place, 77, shows up. How many times do I have to forgive that old rascal that keeps sinning against me? Well, how about I do it? How about I do it a few more times than the Pharisees would do it? That, that's good enough, right? No, Jesus said, 70 times 7 until it is finished, until I am done. That's how long you have to forgive. And so it's not as important that we worry about all the details of the 77s as we know what the end is going to be. Is that, are we all tracking there? This verse is critical. To that end, I am not going to read the rest of the passage. I am going to stop right there because that is the most important piece. I am not going to tell you my opinions on the 77s. Now, is all God's word profitable? Yes, but not taken out of context. It's not. And this, this is Daniel's assurance that Gabriel was giving to him that what I'm about to tell you is going to be hard for you to hear. It's in the same vein as the visions that have come before. But what's important for you to know is that at the end of it, though it looks like all will be lost, and if you read the book of Revelation, it's right in line with these things. Jesus is victorious. Hang on. Stay faithful. Preach the word of God. Read the word of God. Pray the word of God. Live the word of God. Use the means of grace. Be faithful. That is your charge. Don't get tangled up in that whole mindset of, if, I'm, if I just knew when Jesus was coming, I could look busy. And he wouldn't know about my heart. Think how ridiculous that is. What do you need to know the times and the days for? You've been given your charge. Be faithful regardless of what's happening. You should run the same direction no matter what happens to the throne of grace. Amen? So what do we learn from Daniel chapter 9? And at this point... Only verses 1 through 24, we have been robbed of 25, 26, and 27. Number one, God's word and character, as well as our failings, should lead us to pray. If, God, if you're reading God's word and it doesn't move you to pray, I'm going to pause it, you're reading it wrong. Two, God's past promise, promise keeping, and future promises should lead us to pray with confidence. Three, the story will conclude with the end to sin and the flourishing of righteousness. All things will be made new. We will at long last no longer see through a glass half darkly. We will at long last behold the glory of God in its fullness as it is intended. And that should move us to pray and to be 
uh, disciple-making disciples and to be the people of God seeking to be faithful no matter the times, no matter the kings, no matter the queens, no matter the parties, no matter the rhetoric, no matter what is going on. Be faithful. That is where you are called. That is where you are safest. Listen to what Ian Duguid says, and this will lead us into our time of baptism, which Wes Calton will lead. He says, God's work is a long-term project, not a transformation that will be accomplished by the wave of a magic wand. Our sanctification will literally take a lifetime. You ever thought about that? Your sanctification is going to take the entirety of the days predetermined by God for you. It's not like you hit 50, which I'll soon know, and you're like, all right, I've arrived, and now I've got like 20, 25 years of just afterglow. No. No, ask Bill Tippins, who's over 50, I believe. He's got some 70s in there. Um, If if he's got it all together. And if he doesn't cry, something's wrong. Because he'll tell you he doesn't have it all together. I'm not calling him out specifically, but one of the things I love about Bill that's so helpful that keeps me humble is that he's continuing to learn, he's continuing to grow, even as an elder of this church. And he continues to enjoy the grace of God in a very profound way that I hope that I will still do if the Lord gives me that long. God's work is a long-term project, not a transformation that will be accomplished by the wave of a magic wand. Our sanctification will literally take a lifetime, our lifetime, to be complete. We are all works of renovation and progress. You do not sit next to somebody perfected, and they don't either. You are sitting next to someone whose sanctification is in process. Be gracious to them. He goes on. And will be so until the day we die. It is important that we remember this truth so that we will be patient with God's work in ourselves and in those around us. This reality is not to be viewed as license for us to give in to sin or be slack in pursuing holiness. On the contrary, the assurance that God will surely complete the good work he has begun in us should stir us to the diligent pursuit of present obedience in his word. I need to read that again because I'm not sure you're convinced. On the contrary, the assurance that God will surely complete the good work that he has begun in us should stir us to the diligent pursuit of present obedience to his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Daniel. Thank you for his obedience to pray because your word stirred him to do so. May you move our hearts to pray because of your word, to pray with a greater confidence than even Daniel. Daniel is looking forward. He doesn't yet know who Jesus Christ is. He he knows he's coming, but he doesn't know all the details. We are on the far side of the cross and the resurrection. We are between the now and the not yet. We have so much more to be prayerful for than even Daniel did. And yet, Lord, so often we remain silent. Forgive us. Forgive our arrogance. Forgive our unwillingness to believe in your promises. Forgive our unmovedness by your worship. 
And God even saying that, I know you forgive us, and that should not stir us to continue in the same sin, in the same um, not caring, but instead should provoke us, should begin to stir that smoking flax in us to flame so that we would desire relationship with you most displayed between the now and the not yet in prayer and in our time in your word. God, help us to grow as your people. Fashion us into your instruments of redemption so that we could display your glory for your name in the places that you have called us. God, help us as we see this baptism this morning that we would remember our own and all of the gifts that come from that sacrament, that means of grace. Would we improve upon our own baptisms and grow in maturity? May we not continue year after year to say the same things over and over and over again. Though it is a long process, there should be fruit and progress of some kind. Would you give it to us in the power of your Spirit, in the person and work of Christ? In Christ's name, amen. Emily. There's some water. All right. Um, well, it's not good when you're it's already starting to lose it before you even get up here. So, uh, multiple sources of water before us. Um, y'all, I'm uh, I'm honored to get to be here with Emily. Um, I'm convicted by the message we just heard. Uh, baptism is a celebration of God's faithfulness, and it's just so easy to um, discount that, to cheapen it. Um, even as we've just heard, how do we how do we persevere? Um, it's it's simple, really. It's it's God's faithfulness um, that should drive us back to Him continually, and that's why I'm so excited to get to stand here with Emily this morning. Um, because hers is a story of God's faithfulness. Um, and to humbly come forward um, as one who has already received Christ and has had a period of time already growing in him and still be willing to receive um, this beautiful command of our Lord and Savior that, that pictures for us the benefits of being united to him um, is a faithful picture of the gospel. Um, I've gotten to be Emily's pastor for the past two and a half years with RUF, um, and so I'm, I'm humbled to get to be here with Emily. She has a contagious personality. She is friendly. She'll befriend anyone, um, so if you're meeting with her in public, be prepared. You might run into some of her friends and have to pause and talk to them, but it's worth it. Uh, so I'm just so excited to be here with Emily, and I wanted to share with Emily and with you this morning a passage that we probably don't go to very often when we look at baptism, but it's from Acts Chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia... The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. 
There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Until what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, Emily, when I was contemplating coming up here and and getting um, to administer baptism to you, I I couldn't help but think of the story of Apollos. Um, He's he's an interesting figure in Scripture because we're not really sure uh, who spoke to him first, right? Where did he hear the gospel? Um, It's just clear that God was at work in his life. He was someone who was already in God's word. Uh, He had gifts, right? He was eloquent. He was able to teach. God was using him. Priscilla and Aquila come across him and like, this this is great. This is wonderful. But we need to explain to you some more of this. And then regardless of whether uh, Apollos is with these people or it just seems like Luke is giving us two stories uh, of both Apollos and then these men in Ephesus who have already been converted, have been growing in the faith. Um, and yet they still need to be humbly corrected and, and receive this, this beautiful sacrament of baptism. Um, and I, I'm so encouraged that God in his wisdom gave us this story, right? We tend to think uh, of baptism either being our children. We see that often here at church, and that's something we should celebrate. Perhaps we should celebrate even more than we do. And at the same time, we should have a desire to see genuine conversions and people standing before us. Um, receiving baptism because they've been brought into the family of faith. And yet, we also have this example, even in the early church, of people who, for, for whatever reason, weren't baptized immediately. They, they weren't like the Ethiopian eunuch, or like, there's some water, let's do this. Uh, but Apollos is able to humbly receive correction. Um, all of his gifts, all of his skills, all of his knowledge of Scripture, does it preclude him from receiving this humble sign and assurance of, of God's grace that he needs, that he needs desperately the cleansing of Christ that can only come by his blood. Just like this water before us points to that cleansing aspect of being united in Christ's death, but also being re- united in his resurrection and the power of his resurrection in being blessed and having his spirit poured out upon us, right? It's almost comical, right? Like, you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit? Then what sort of baptism did you have? Right? Because this baptism points to the blessing of God's spirit being poured out on us. The spirit by which we can cry out, Abba, Father to God. As Cameron has assured us this morning, that the privilege we have to go to God is displayed for us even in the visible words of this sign and this seal of being united in Christ's baptism. And so I'm excited because Emily is someone that I can look at and say, God has been at work in your life. You've been faithful through some difficult seasons, through some hard stories, and yet he has kept you in Christ. He's used you to love others and bless them, and yet that hasn't stopped Emily from saying, I need to receive this sign. None of my gifts, none of the things that God has done in my life has somehow made me not needing um, what this sacrament holds out to us. And so I hope that will be an encouragement to you this morning, that, that we speak of returning and improving about our baptism of building on this foundation that we never move beyond the foundation of union with Christ and the gifts that are ours because of being united to him, um, that we all desperately need his spirit at work in our lives, that we desperately need that cleansing. Um, That's the foundation for everything we do, and that should drive us to prayer and dependence upon him.
Um, and so having received your testimony already this session, having examined you, um, it's my privilege now to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Would y'all join me in prayer? Gracious Father, uh, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. Um, would we not grow weary or tired of this, this humble sign you've given us of the profound mystery of being united to the Son of God who has died for us, who has cleansed us by his blood, and who has also raised, been raised to a newness of life, even to your right hand, who is reigning even now and has blessed us with your spirit, the great comforter, Father, would you build up Emily? Would you continue to show her your faithfulness? Would you help her to remember the ways in which you have been faithful to her in Christ so that she would continue to come to you in a humble dependence and prayer? And Father, would you do that in our church? Would you make that a distinguishing mark of this community, of your body, as Emily is brought into this fellowship of, of your body? Would you make it a fellowship of prayer? a fellowship of confession and humble dependence on you that, that changes us, that leads us to love one another and to love our community in a way that we could not apart from you, apart from your spirit and the many blessings that are ours in union with Christ. God, you are glorious, and so would you do all that you have promised in Christ. It is ours in him, and so we pray in his name. Amen. you stand with us as we close out our service by singing nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Again, I know you're not practiced, but we saw someone get baptized. And how should we respond to something like that? Thank you. Thank you. The, just the kids got it first, by the way. I just want to point that out to you. All right, here's the benediction. Receive it from Revelation 19, 6 through 9, and this will make that Matthew 22 passage make a lot more sense to you. And good that this comes at the end. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Go in blessing and in peace. Mm -hmm.